Cheryl Sandberg actually called me out on this. I was at a meeting and I said something in front of the other executives and she said, afterwards, she pulled me aside. She said, you can stop fighting now, you've won. And she realized it wasn't about fighting for your rights. It was actually, I was just fighting everyone. And she's like, wow. you're fighting everyone around you. You need to back off. And it took me a long time to understand what she was saying, but it was so transformative to me because that fight was everything I had and I had to find a new identity. Well, what am I fighting for now? At the time, that kind of, that, that power of like being angry and upset at how I grew up was rocket fuel because it drove me to succeed, to be ambitious, to do all the things. And then suddenly it was starting to burn me up and it was starting to hurt my relationships. And I had to really retool and figure out where I wanted to go from there. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the CEO of Ancestry, which is a giant tech company we'll talk about, and the author of the important new book, Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work, Deb Liu. Welcome, Deb. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here, Andrew. Um, it's so great to be able to connect. Uh, so you are the CEO of a really significant company. I think at one point it was a public company. It might have gotten taken private. You might know it as Ancestry.com. Um, I've seen it referred to as Ancestry, which is probably a little bit broader. Uh, what is Ancestry? You know, Ancestry is the world's leading genealogy company, but we also specialize in helping people tell their family histories and discover their family histories. So most people know us because you've either built to try to build a family tree or if you've actually done a DNA test, we're actually the world's largest consumer genomics company hidden in a family history company as well. And so it is a way to show how the human race has been connected to each other in many ways we never imagined. Wow. So did you use it? <laughs> you <laughs> showed up. Did you like, oh, I better, I, I better test it out? Well, you know, one of the things I did when I was interviewing for this role is I had, I had done the DNA test, but I really wanted to build my family history. And I invited all my cousins. I built out, you know, what I had. And I started the family storytelling and actually uploaded all the photos that my cousins had collected over the years and started tagging them and telling the stories. And so it's been a great adventure. I think we still have more to do for minority communities, especially those whose parents are immigrants. But one of the things has just been really unfolding the story of our family one piece at a time. I, I confess I have not used it in part because um, I think my family would be really boring. Uh, you know, my dad grew up on a farm in Taiwan, so it's like farmer, farmer, farmer is what I'm imagining. <laughs> but I, I should definitely uh, test, test it out. So you all must have changed a lot of lives. Do you have any particularly memorable or uplifting uh, customer accounts? Yeah, I mean, we have so many great stories. I mean, we've helped people connect. There was one woman who found a book with her um, her father's book from the Holocaust and actually had the names of those wow. who, who was there with them. And actually she didn't know how to contact them. So she went on Ancestry and actually found them, contacted them and actually did a reunion with the children and grandchildren who had been with her father. And so these are just the stories, a few of the stories of how people just use our service in different ways we never imagined, actually. And it's really exciting. I have never been to a dinner party where someone didn't tell me an amazing ancestry story. And that's actually what attracted me to take this role. Well, so you had an incredible career arc leading up to it. Uh, you worked at PayPal. 
eBay, and then uh, Facebook slash Meta. Um, so you must have been in very high demand. I mean, again, uh, Ancestry was a really significant enterprise. Were there other roles you were considering? Like what, where, what juncture was your career at when you took this role? You know, I had served 11 years at uh, Facebook, now Meta, and I built a lot of things there. I worked on games and payments. I had uh, built Facebook Marketplace. They built the first um, direct response ads product as well as um, the advertising network. And I realized at some point, you know, is there another chapter for me here? And as I was looking, I actually talked to several companies about CEO roles. And but there was something about ancestors felt right. It was something I really cared about, which was family history. My family is so important to me. I'm still very close to everybody, despite the fact that we live all over the world. And so this company really spoke to me when I first started talking to them. And as I got deeper into it, I could just see the possibilities. And, you know, since I've been there, the, the work that we've been doing is actually building Ancestry for All. You know, our product is really amazing. If you come from a European background, we still have work to do if you don't. And so, you know, really building Ancestry for All. And also me to we, like, you know, it's really a solo research product when I first got here. And now really kind of building it so that people can actually share that with their families. Because, you know, they, you know people tell me stories of how their mother will actually pull out their computer and turn it around so people can see their discoveries. And I said, you know, wow. we can bring that into the modern age and actually bring you onto the platform so you can see these discoveries real time. And so a lot of the work we've been doing has been just building a more communal kind of family oriented product than not just a solo activity. Well, you're an expert in building massive social products that reach millions and millions of people. Uh, so Meta has been through something of an arc. Uh, I, I feel like it's true for a lot of Silicon Valley and you've been there for a while. Like, what do you think of the, uh, I, I guess, shifting perceptions of Silicon Valley? There, there are people that you know who work at all of these firms. I know people, too. Like, in my mind, most everyone who works at these companies uh, wants to do good things. Uh, you know, it's very hard to argue that Ancestry is anything but benevolent, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's applying, you know, information about people's uh, family trees. Um, but what is your sense of Silicon Valley's, uh, I suppose, the, the, the place in the public consciousness over the last number of years? You know, the one thing is everyone who's at these companies, like you said, really wants to build great things. I mean, I built Facebook Marketplace that connects over a billion people to buy and sell from each other because I just knew that there was a possibility that people can actually do community commerce and there's less waste in the world. And yet there were times when people took advantage of each other on the platform, not because that was what we intended, but because, you know, people stolen from each other or hurt each other. And that is not a good thing. And there are frauds and scams and things that we need to keep in mind when we're building for so many people, because when you bring humanity together, there's good and there's bad. But, you know, one of the things that's really important is that. What are we trying to achieve and how do we actually ensure that the good is where we are focusing, but also that we're actually protecting people from things and harms that can happen as well. And so each of these choices we make is how much are you investing in making sure you have the great experience and yet at the same time protect from the negative experiences at the same time. It, it's not always easy though, because how do you know what those experiences are gonna be? I mean, there was yeah. one experience on Facebook Marketplace where in one country, people started selling diplomas. And we thought, well, how is that even a thing? You know, but in there, in one country, diplomas are actually kind of like driver's licenses. So it was like fake identification. And you know, we had to decide, well, do we ban diplomas worldwide? Do we ban the word? Do we? And these are, wow. this seems to be an innocuous choice. And yet it was one country where this was a problem. And we had to make a decision for either that language, that country, for the world. 
And it was a micro choice that we had to make, but imagine that at, at 10,000, 100,000 of these decisions made by people who really, really want to do the right thing. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S V-P-N dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Yeah, I mean, that's like a good illustration because it's something we would never think of. Uh, but then you imagine that extrapolated to hundreds of countries and uh, uh, different categories uh, so you wrote a really important book, Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work. Uh, there are a bunch of stories in here that I'm very excited to dig in with you. But w- one of them was about how you showed up at uh, Facebook as a product manager, which is a very important role. Uh, and fewer than 10% of the product managers at the time were women. And you saw that and said, huh, like that that can't be right. Uh, and then you set about trying to, to change that with a lot of success over time. Uh, So uh, how did that evolve? And how did you manage to, frankly, get attention to a problem that a lot of people might have just looked at and said, like, huh, um, you know, that's just like the state of affairs? You know, the story is actually worse than that. In fact, I couldn't come in as a product manager because I didn't qualify. I didn't have a computer science degree, even though I ran the buyer experience at eBay as the product lead. And actually, that happened to a lot of people. So, you know, the story was a lot of us who started in product management early on actually, you know, were, did not have technical degrees. I have an engineering degree, but in civil engineering. And so if you want me to build you a house, we can talk about it. But I can't really actually uh, code anything. Well, and so, so, so it was so specific. They said, hey, it's not even engineering background. It's literally computer science. Correct. It was a computer science degree. And, you know, and they had a technical interview as well. And, you know, again, a lot of us didn't qualify. And so we had many of us who started, you know, by the way, 20% of computer science degrees in America are earned by women. And so suddenly people who had amazing product careers couldn't get their next job. And it was because one company made a choice in 2004. Google said, we really want technical PMs. We want them to have a computer science degree. And it made sense for the evolution of where they were at the time but that every company copied it 
and it didn't necessarily make sense for everybody else. And so over the years, a lot of people couldn't get their next job. A lot of people who came out of school without a computer science degree couldn't enter product. And suddenly you're in this kind of, you know, you're in this progress has like completely slowed. Those of us who worked early on, a lot of the VPs of product actually were women. And, you know, at one point, the entirety of Amy Clement's uh, product team at PayPal, all the directors were women sitting around her table. And none of us could probably get another job in product for a period of time. And so we ended up doing a lot of other things. I came in as a product marketer and eventually was invited into product. And then I looked around and said, where are all the women here? And, you know, luckily I had such great support and I, you know, talked to the head of recruiting. I talked to the CPO and I said, hey, we can change this but we need to make these changes. So one was dropping the computer science degree, two was dropping the technical interview, and three was just really changing the way we interview to actually look for things that were high signal, not just things that we thought were, we were looking for. So you had great ground to stand on because you were actually already successful in the role, and you could say, uh, or you could say with authority, it's like, look guys, you know, you could clearly can be excellent uh, as a product manager without having this particular qualification. But I dare say it must have been really difficult to get someone to change that requirement. I think you might have written a LinkedIn post that, that actually asked, hey, guys, why are there so few women in product? And then it ended up igniting uh, this entire conversation. That, that must have felt, um, frankly, uh, like a risk at the time, uh, you know, like is it, it seems a little bit like you're, you know, you're, I mean, again, like you're arguing a case where it's like, look, guys, like I, I clearly can do this job. <laughs> this, this. Uh, this qualification uh, may not make sense, but uh, did you expect it to get as much attention as it did? Well, what fascinated me was first, it took me four years to write that the article wow. because every time I thought about it, you know, the bug was put in my ear by actually April Underwood, who at one point was the head of product for Slack. And, you know, what she said was, you know, I was, I was, you know, technical enough to be a product manager for many years. And then suddenly I couldn't go into Google as a product manager. And we talked long and extensively about it. And we realized that it wasn't us, that the system had changed beneath us and we had no idea. And, you know, I wrote that article and I kept thinking, I can't be the only person who notices this. I finally published it. And, you know, I had the full support of Facebook to do it. I had, we had been making changes over the years already when I was heading up product recruiting. But when I published it, you should, the comments were incredible. So many people, especially women said, you know what? I thought it was just me. I couldn't get my next job. I couldn't advance, I've left the industry or I've left the role because I couldn't make progress. But suddenly we realized it was a systemic choice that the industry had made and the wrong choice in my mind. And you know, now a, a lot of companies have dropped the computer science requirement and product managers are not worse, they're better because now we can draw from so many different backgrounds. So many incredible product managers I work with don't come from a computer science background and that's absolutely okay. I think of the product managers when we did a survey at Women in Product, it was something like only 30% had either computer science or even a technical degree like engineering which meant that 70% of the people in the audience who were active in the industry didn't qualify for their own jobs at one point. And I was thinking, that's such a tragedy. Yeah, you clearly need different perspectives uh, to build products that work for everyone. And you have some stories in the book about how uh, early on in Facebook, you said, hey, guys, you might want to have a status called expecting for when you're pregnant. <laughs> and then the people looked at you like, why on earth would anyone want to do that? And then years later, they were like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was a pretty uh, good call by you. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think we just we just need to bring more diversity to the table. And at the time when I joined the company, I had two kids. I had a newborn and a toddler. And so I just saw the world really differently, right? I was the only mom PM for many, many years. And, you know, I could see such opportunity for Facebook to be so powerful for moms because I could see that world. Like I, but I, I asked the product manager, well, what do you do when you find out you're expecting, you want to announce it to your friends? And he's like, sure. what? And he said, you post a picture of the ultrasound. And he's like, why would you do that? And then, and then later he had kids and he's like, I get it now. And the point <laughs> is, it's not because he's not brilliant. It's because he just didn't have that life experience. That, and it was just a diverse life experience that I had had. And the same thing with Facebook Marketplace. I kept telling people, I buy and sell a ton of stuff on Facebook. And they're like, why would anyone want to buy anything here? And but I wasn't part of all these mom groups where we traded things because you have so much stuff when you have kids and you just keep recycling things. And, you know, I'm like, how many bicycles can you really put in your garage before you run out of space? And so one of the things I did was it, I bought quite, quite a few, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a whole plan around that, which is you buy a bicycle, the kids use it. When they outgrow it, you sell it back on Marketplace. It's like rental. It's a good plan. It's a, fine it's a great plan. And you don't have to store all of it. And so I had done this for years, and I realized that other people couldn't see it because they didn't have kids at the time. And now that once people had kids, they understood what I was talking about. But this is why diversity matters, because you can see the world from different perspectives and build products that are more inclusive for people who might not already be at the company. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You write about being an introvert growing up, a uh, child of immigrants. I could relate to both of those things for sure. Uh, and, and then you... Uh, talk about how you took a class at um, Stanford Business School uh, that really changed your mindset. Um, I actually interviewed Jeff Pfeffer, whom I met through you, who's the Stanford professor, and the class asked, okay, what is the thing you're going to do differently as a result of this class in your career? And you wrote down, I'm going to be an extrovert at work, which is a very, very big deal. Uh, you know, I, I have to say, uh, that, that's a massive, deliberate choice. And I can relate to aspects of this because I was a very introverted, uh, bookish kid. Uh, I stepped into 
the public spotlight in a way that demanded a certain degree of extroversion. And my team had to get accustomed to the fact that uh, I was still natively an introvert. And so I would do a bunch of press or, or events. And then afterwards, I just want to be alone, <laughs> honestly. And some of them were not introverts. So they're like, oh, like, you know, like, like this is an adjustment. The fact that you consciously said, hey, I'm going to be an extrovert at work. Uh, I have to say there are a lot of introverts listening to this or watching this right now that that makes them wince and pain. Um, there, there's certainly a belief among some people that the goal when you go to work is to be quote unquote, uh, you know, who you are, your natural self. And so it, it might seem uh, like asking a lot for someone to subvert their, their nature. Um, so what made you uh, commit to that resolution? Uh, and do, do you advise other people who are introverts who come to you? Because I'm sure a lot of people come to you now for uh, career advice. Do you actually say to them, hey, you might, you might want to actually uh, uh, take a different tack at work? You know, I wrote this article called The Secret Bias No One Talks About, and it's along the lines of Susan Cain's Quiet, which is we have this massive bias in our society. In American society, we really value people who speak up. You know, think about who is charismatic, who's out there, who we pick as our politicians, people who pick as we, for CEO. You know, we don't pick the person who's quietly doing the work behind the scenes. We're picking the person who can stand up on stage and inspire people, right or wrong. And one of the things I, I had to learn in that class at Stanford was I had to learn that, you know, that yes, introversion is, is a state. You know, we actually have a trait in ancestry for introversion versus extroversion, and mine is like extremely introverted. And yet at the same time, I treat it like learning a language. If I had to learn a different language to be successful, you know, if I, if I wanted to run a division and it was in Spain and I had to learn Spanish, I would go do it. So I just treat it as a second language. It doesn't have to be a native language. <laughs> the language of extroverts. It. I'm gonna yes. translate. I would. I would just love. Like, I just want to understand what that world is, but I don't have to live in that world. I still dream in the, my native language, but at the same time, I can learn a different language if absolutely necessary to be successful and to persuade others. And I realize, you know, just like you have gone through this evolution, you know, you know, you have gotten on stage in front of. 50 million people and done something that no one who's an introverted would ever have thought to do. And yet at the same time, you did it because it was a necessity for what you hope to accomplish in your life and the change that you hope to make and the voice that you want to have. And it's the same thing for me, which is we can choose to be introverted and, you know, say, this is who I am, or we can say, I'm going to learn this new skill that's going to be to help me connect with other people. And when you put it that way, suddenly it's, wow, you know, it's a skill and it's helping me connect with other people. It's not about selfishness or giving. It's actually about the opportunity to get out of our own heads and say, how can we help others to be more comfortable? Yeah, that, I mean, it's very powerful and personal. But I, I have to say, the facts are the facts. Uh, you know, and your book has some data. Uh, Jeff Pfeffer's book certainly has a, a ton of data about the fact that uh, certain behaviors do help you uh, make connections with folks who can help advance your careers. Um, one episode you recount in your book is around sponsors, uh, and there was a male executive who um, noticed that, or actually you told him, um, he was like, hey, why don't you talk more in these meetings? And you're like, actually, I do talk, and then I get cut off anytime I do it. And then he was like, what? And then he paid attention the next time and then saw someone cut you off. And then the person who cut you off then reached out to you individually later to apologize. You realized it was because this 
male sponsor uh, actually nudged him and said, "Hey, man, you're totally cutting Deb off." But maybe you know, maybe did it to other women too. In some cases, it's helpful to have uh, allies and what you call sponsors that that help clear the way. Yeah, I mean, first of all. We, we talk about mentors and sponsors. Mentors give you advice and sponsors open doors and they're the ones who take action. And in this case, my manager, I mean, he was a great manager, by the way, even before this, but he just well, he kept saying, you should, he's not, I mean, <laughs> even before he, he, but one thing that really I struggled with was he would say, why don't you speak up more? And I'm like, have you watched me try to talk? Because I had committed to being an extrovert at work. So I tried, but in the meetings we were in, he noticed I wasn't talking. And so every, you know, so I tried to speak a couple of times and he realized I was cut off immediately. But what he did was so powerful, which is he said, I see you and I'm gonna address this. So he didn't actually tell me he was gonna do this, but the next time I was cut off, that person apologized and I said, he, he reached out to you, didn't he? And I thanked him because behind the scenes, he's making it easier for someone like me, who's extremely, you know, I'm already introverted. And so every time I got spoken over in my head, I was like, well, what if I'm saying something wrong? What if, you know, I'm not smart enough? And I was internalizing the feedback of getting cut off as saying, hey, maybe you're not good enough. Whereas maybe an extrovert wouldn't have reacted that way, but it helped me to really see that I needed somebody to say, you know what, I have your back. And I have your back right now, and I'm gonna have your back every single time that this happens again. And by the way, it never happened again because he was, he was actually there making sure it wasn't gonna happen in this meeting. Well, I'm sure the word, I'm sure the word got out in that group. It's like, hey guys, you know, like uh, uh, cutting Deb off or cutting the female uh, managers or executives off is is a no-no in in this crew, which obviously uh, is, is a vital message. You had an incredible story in the book about how there was a guy you just did not get on with at all. Um, you found yourself uh, really, really, I think your, your exact words were like, look, if I had to work for that guy, I would just quit my job. Um, and then uh, Facebook kind of put you two together. Um, and you had to have what struck me as almost, it was almost like a marriage counseling, like a work marriage counseling, which by the way, reading this, I was just like, oh my gosh, does, does this sound like a lot of people's worst nightmare? <laughs> Maybe because there are a lot of people who would leave their job, frankly, if they were, they were forced to work with someone um, that they had such bad chemistry with. Um, and they managed to get you two to get to the bottom of the dynamic um, uh, in a way that I, frankly, I thought was remarkable. Like, I hadn't seen much of it in, in a corporate setting. I've run teams, and I don't think I would have. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I would have been like, hey, guys. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've certainly done this, like, one time, and, like, hey, look, you guys got to work it out. Like, I've done something like that. But I, I didn't take it to the extent that uh, that, that your team did. Um, and, and I thought it was really incredible for you to share uh, that story um, uh, and have that person willing to participate as well because, uh, like, it seemed like exactly the kind of work situation that, that most people um, actively dread. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about how you managed to make that a success? Well, you know, I, I said, you know, there's always one person. So I've asked you, is there one person that you would rather quit than report to? Well, this was that person for me. And everyone knew it, by the way. And so when my manager was leaving, he said, by the way, you know, you're going to report to Boz. Boz is now the CTO of Meta. And I said, I'd rather quit. And he said, <laughs> I mean, very, 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 that's a pretty I mean, clear message. 
I texted my husband and I said, I'm going to have to quit my job. And he's like, what happened? And I said, I have to report to Boz. And he said, oh, I understand. I mean, this is, I had a really great career. I was really happy there. And um, the next thing my manager said is, Mark wants to talk to you. And so I went to Mark's office and he said, I know how you feel about each other. So it was well <laughs> I mean, the thing that everyone knew this too was crazy to me. But it was, uh, Mark knew it. I mean, Cheryl had gotten us into previous counseling before. So we, it was well known that we struggled with our relationship and yet, you know, we, we had made it work by staying as far away from each other as possible. And yet Smart. we worked on things that overlapped actually. And so it was a really frustrating experience for both of us because I respect him so much. He's brilliant, but we were just so different. Like how we saw the world, how we interact with each other. And, you know, they said, can you just give it three months? And so I said, okay. And we sat down and we worked through, you know, so much of how we see someone else is through our own experience. And I told him, I really struggle with his style. He was extremely aggressive. He's this really big guy with a big voice and he completely intimidated me. And so every time he spoke, I just had this visceral reaction. And he was somebody who was just a bigger than life personality. And a lot of times he would ask questions in this pointed way. I just felt constantly kind of on the defense. And because I was defensive, he would push harder because that was his way of getting to the answer. And it's just like oil and water. No matter what we did, we would just, you know, be on the wrong side. And in the end, I said, look, this is what I want. If we want to, if I'm going to report to you, this is what I need. And I wrote it out and actually sent him an email. And he's like, you're welcome to send a copy to HR if you'd like. And then he said, but I'm asking one thing of you. I want you to write something and post it every month in our internal channels. And I'm like, that is a very strange ask because I had written a very long like document with multiple points and what we agreed to. And he's like, that's the only thing I want from you. And I said, okay, if that's what you ask, I will do it. And you know, he lived up to his side of the commitment. I lived up to my side of the commitment. We realized you know, one of the things that we committed to was if there was ever a, a single inkling of us being off the same page, we would immediately contact each other. And we did. And suddenly we realized that so much of our relationship was a misunderstanding built on a misunderstanding. And in the end, he actually, you know, I, I lived up to my commitment. I wrote way more. I never had really written and published. And when I wrote this book, I asked him if I could actually tell our story and he helped me do it. He actually helped me write this chapter of the book. And so, you know, it doesn't always end perfectly, but you know, in this case where two people are really trying, you can find, find a way to work together. It really is possible. I mean, it's a pretty good metaphor for, uh, you know, like larger, conflict resolution, uh, maybe organization-wide or, or even at this point society-wide, um, given what uh, a lot of the, the, the country is going through. Uh, so you are uh, you write about being Christian in the book in a way that uh, I think is unusual for what some might think of as a business book. Um, you certainly get very personal in the book. You talk about your marriage uh, to, to Dave, who seems like a, you know, a phenomenally uh, supportive partner um, you guys have have traded off in terms of uh, responsibilities around the the family um, over the last number of years. Uh, I have friends who are Christian in tech. Uh, a couple of them have told me stories where I'm like, "Whoa, that doesn't seem cool." Where where I, I guess they're like assumptions that people make about Christians. Um, have you had any experiences in in that direction? I think you were even the head of a like a, a Christian professional uh, group at, at Facebook. You know. Actually, people have been so gracious. And part of it, I wear a cross. 
and you know people will come up to me and and share with me their thoughts and sometimes it's hard to hear i mean people have been hurt by the church and there have been many people who who have been hurt by religion at various points in their lives and and i i share this quote with fellow christians which is you know gandhi said i would be christian but for the fact that i've met christians and you know we are in imperfect faith and there are a lot of imperfect people who are still like figuring out their way and so but so many people have been so gracious to open the door to a conversation and share that hurt with me and to say, you know, I don't understand. Can you help me? And I have, you know, sat down and said, hey, I hear you and I hear the pain that you've experienced and let's talk about it. But, you know, very few people have ever broad brushed. I mean, there have been people who are surprised, though. They say, but you're so reasonable. And I'm like, um, I think you just made this assumption that I would not be reasonable, but let's talk. And I think it's how we approach this. You know, when you approach it in the in the spirit of relationship, in the spirit of care, people are open to having a conversation and hearing, you know, different perspectives. But I think when we say, well, you know what, you know, it's it's you either, either believe it or you don't. You know, that's that is not how we look at the world. So how how I see um, what I believe is that other people are open to having the conversation. Why am I not open to having the conversation around what I believe as well? And so. And, you know, not everyone has to believe exactly the same thing, but they, I, I wish that we opened the door to hearing where we each came from, because that's how we journey through life together. Well, it's a, a beautiful message. And one of, one of the most important messages in your book, I thought, was this message of forgiveness. Uh, you don't hear a lot about forgiveness in business <laughs> or, or, or politics. It is a deeply uh, Christian idea. And you write about forgiving yourself. Uh, in a way that I also thought was very powerful. Um, you seem to have a bit of a, I, I don't think this is, you know, like out of turn given given the book, but you seem to have a bit of a chip on your shoulder. For, <laughs> for, um, uh, in part because you grew up one of the uh, lone um, immigrant families uh, in South Carolina in a context where uh, you were very acutely aware of your identity. And this is something that I also can relate to growing up in upstate New York in the 70s as one of the lone Asian families. Uh, you know, like I, I had uh, a lot of uh, teasing and um, some fights. Uh, you know, kid, kids are generally uh, pretty quick to point out differences uh, uh, with other kids. And you write about having to forgive yourself um, and then also forgiving others, uh, and having that actually as something that helped fuel your ability to, to make positive things happen in the world. Yeah, you know, I do think that we we don't talk about forgiveness in the workplace or, or in, of ourselves way, nearly enough. I mean, for me, I absolutely had a chip on my shoulder. I grew up in a place where people would come up to my parents, adults, not even kids, you'd go back to where you came from. And in my mind, I would think New York, because I'm from New York. Um, I grew up in Queens. And I just remember thinking, how could people actually say that to someone else that they don't even know? And yet, you know, I spent my whole childhood being othered, being that person who ate strange food and, you know, didn't quite fit in and was always, you know, no matter where I went, people would just ask questions about, you know, that felt really intrusive. And, and I really struggled with the bullying and all of those things. And yet I realized that for me, I just protected myself, right? I built a hard shell. I've, if I was just really quiet and I had a hard shell and nobody could get, could penetrate, then I would win. And I realized that when you become, when, you know, when you kind of protect yourself by building this wall, it becomes impenetrable for you to exit either also. 
And so it, I had to really work through that. And Cheryl Sandberg actually called me out on this. I was at a meeting and I said something in front of the other executives and she said, afterwards she pulled me aside, she said, you can stop fighting now, you've won. And she realized it wasn't about fighting for your rights, it was actually, I was just fighting everyone. And she's like, wow. you're fighting everyone around you, you need to back off. And it took me a long time to understand what she was saying, but it was so transformative to me because that fight was everything I had and I had to find a new identity. Well, what am I fighting for now? And so I had to really find a lot of grace in that. And, and I have over the years, but at the time that kind of, that, that power of like being angry and upset at how I grew up was rocket fuel because it drove me to succeed, to be ambitious, to do all the things. And then suddenly it was starting to burn me up and it was starting to hurt my relationships. And I had to really retool and figure out where I wanted to go from there. Yeah, you, you write about uh, getting down on yourself for being an imperfect parent. By the way, I mean, you know, we, we're both parents, so, like, y you screw up every, uh, you know, few days probably in some form. <laughs> Jeez, I, my kids would say every hour. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I mean, your kids will say more often than that. Uh, but then you're like, you know what, I, I, I have to stop beating myself up over that, uh, and it'll make me a better parent. And then you realize, wait a minute, that actually applies to a lot of other things. Um, in life too. I'll share with you, when I was younger, I used to berate myself uh, for a mistake, oftentimes a mistake that only I would notice, like mistakes that other people didn't, didn't even see. Uh, and being able to let that sort of thing go became necessary for me to be able to uh, put myself out there and do certain things because you're going to screw up um, all the time in that context. And if you're an introvert, I think a lot of introverts are naturally kind of hard on themselves that way. Uh, so I, I could relate very much to this lesson um, because I, when someone asked me a while ago, it's like, hey, how were you, uh, how did you have to evolve to put yourself out in public life? And, and I said, I just had to stop being so hard on myself. That is absolutely true. I think so often we're the hardest on ourselves more than anybody else. I remember when, you know, I was growing up. I was the one who said, I got a 99. What happened to the last point? I was, my parents Wasn't actually- even your parents, Deb? Come on. My parents, parents actually- the Asian parents. My parents are actually way more laid back than you would expect <laughs> really? your parents to be. They're like, why do you study so hard? But I had this internal drive to, I was the, when I was in third grade, I'm like, I'm going to graduate first in my class so I can get a scholarship to college. What third grader actually sits there and plots yeah, this? Yeah, what third grader I, plots that? I but wish my I third didn't. graders plotted that. <laughs> I wish a little bit of that too. But for me, it was my only escape from something I really, really struggled with. Was the this is rural South Carolina, right? Yeah, it was a small town in South Carolina. It's about 45 minutes outside of Charleston. And, you know, I just really struggled with what it was like to grow up being different. I said, I'm going to go to a place where I'm accepted. But in order to get there, I had to get to college. My parents could only help me so much. So I'm like, I'm going to graduate number one. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a scholarship and I'm never going to come back here. And so much of that is that, that rocket fuel I talked about, right? That drive to like break through every barrier. And that helps me until it no longer helps me. So I was a perfectionist and an introvert, which is, you know, maybe two things that are too much compatible in some ways. And so I had to really let go of that because in parenting in particular, there is no perfect and they'll let you know when you're not perfect. <laughs> uh, so I've been to South Carolina a whole lot. Um, because I I'd campaigned there uh, during the 2020 race. Um, it's in the news politically right now. It's going to be one of the first states for 
really both parties, but uh, you know, I guess the Republican Party will be a little bit more interesting and competitive. Uh, Nikki Haley is going to run for, oh, she's already out there in South Carolina. Tim Scott's going to declare in a minute. Um, and a, a lot of the rest of the country maybe um, might have a certain sense of South Carolina from the outside looking in. Um, do you still have ties to the state? And, and what do you think about, uh, uh, I suppose, it being one of the places that helps determine who the presidential nominees are? You know, when I was growing up, nobody ever heard of the state of South Carolina. When I told people when I, you know, left the state um, where I was from, they're like, oh, uh, that's near North Carolina. I'm like, yes, it's just south of it. Yeah, you know, because nobody, had, it, had, it was not known for anything in particular. So it's so amazing to hear people talk about my home state in, in such terms that people actually want to visit. People are actually seeing it for what it could be. You know, the one thing I did love about South Carolina, is a beautiful place with really generous people. You know, not everybody was terrible. It was actually a place of Southern hospitality, great food, and just like so much culture and so much history. And so it's amazing to see people go there, but also it's a very complicated history. The plantations, the slave markets, you know, something like a third of the slaves yeah. who entered this country came from the port of Charleston. And so, you know, that was something which we had to confront and South Carolina, we all studied South Carolina history and we had to learn a lot of the really painful history of what happened there. Even now with the Emanuel AME Church, which I write about in my book, you know, that happened in Charleston. And you know, it's a reminder that we still have a long way to go as we as we kind of look at our history and also move forward. But I'm glad people are, are, are going there and learning about that history and confronting some of the challenges. And especially, you know, two leaders who are who are minorities from South Carolina running in the Republican race will actually, you know, open the door to having those conversations. Yeah, I've, I've been to Charleston. I've been to that uh, building where slaves were uh, brought in uh, and sold. Uh, and you feel this history and, and frankly, like, you know, like this, this sad energy from that place because there's just so much human uh, suffering and misery uh, that, that, that took place there. But also agree with you that, that there are a lot of warm... Uh, friendly people. It's a beautiful state in some ways. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a complicated place. Um, I, I will say that uh, when it's on my schedule, which it is every once in a while, like I, I do enjoy it. Like I have friends there and, and head down there and, and look forward to it. And even my family came down and campaigned one time. I think they might have hit the beach though in South Carolina. I think it was one of those situations where there's like... One of the most beautiful <laughs> beaches in the world are in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, a very, very... Um, yeah, it's a nice beach. <laughs> that way, if, they, if you know, if you visited those um, in those months, so you've had an incredible career thus far. You're just in the midst of it too, because you're so young to be CEO of like a, a massive, massive firm. Um, this book, Take Back Your Power. I mean, it, there's a lot of you in it. There's certainly a lot of heart in it, and personal messages that I think just about anyone could, could relate to. Um, what would you like people to take away from this book? Um, uh, both women who want to succeed in various environments and men who want to uh, be better? You know, I would say that you have, for women, you have so much more power than you think you do. You know, I talk about, yes, do you have less power in certain circumstances? Absolutely, but you have so much more power than you imagine every single day. And so if you just took those opportunities, if you you know, showed up when you're in meetings, if you, if you really just speak up when you feel like you need to, 
those are just moments that you can't take back your power. And so I wrote this because I was that person who needed this book the most over the last 20 years. And I wrote it for all the things that I wish I had been told when I left school and I went out into the workplace. And I think for men, you know, incredible allies are how people succeed. And if you can be an incredible ally, a great husband, I am only where I am. I used the quote from Cheryl in the beginning of the chapter about marriage and, and partnership. And, and I said, you know, the most important career decision you make is who you marry. And that has been absolutely true for me. David has been, you know, I would not be here, Same. but for the <laughs> Yes, Evelyn is in, you know, the, the wind beneath your wings, as they say, like it really is the person who is carrying you forward in, invisibly. And I, I say that, it's kind of cheesy, but I say that because it is that invisible support that we all need to succeed in, in our workplace and in life. And I feel like we underestimate how important that is. Well, you're a, a remarkable role model and example for other people uh, to emulate, really, uh, personally and professionally. I mean, I, I've, I've uh, met your family, and they're freaking uh, happy and prosperous, and you have this phenomenal organization that you're the head of. Uh, I can't believe you've already accomplished so much, uh, and you're you're still just in the, the midst of it, just, uh, you know, like, and I was going to say just starting out, but you're sort of in the middle, <laughs> I, I suppose. Um, take back your power, 10 new rules for women at work, uh, Deb, so excited for you and your message and your progress, uh, and I uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Angie.